Welcome to the Agile Book Club podcast, where we hang out and talk shop with the authors whose ideas are shaping the agile landscape. Here is your host, Paul Clip. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Agile Book Club podcast. I'm your host, Paul Clip, and today we'll be diving into the second part of our interview with the author of Build Your Way, a game changer in using product management principles to revolutionize your life, Milos Belcevich. But first, picture this. You're a product manager for the most important project yet. Your sleep. That's right, folks. Today's episode is brought to you by DreamCloud Mattresses. Imagine if your mattress was like your favorite agile tool, adaptable, supportive, and exceptionally comfortable. With DreamCloud, you don't just sleep, you iterate towards a better rest. DreamCloud, because even product managers need to sprint into dreamland. Now, back to Build Your Way. In our previous episode, we uncovered some of the initial chapters of transforming your life through product management tools, and today we're going to delve deeper, discussing how to prioritize your life goals like a product backlog and implement continuous improvements in your daily routines. So get your Kanban boards ready, and let's jump right in. One of the techniques that you talk about, I think it came out of Prince 2. Tell me if I'm wrong. I think it came out of Prince 2, and that's the Moscow prioritization framework. I'm not sure if it came out of Princeton. I'm not very familiar with Princeton. Okay. That's where I came across the concept for the first time. But when you're looking at more things than you can possibly do, the Moscow prioritization framework assigns to all of the opportunities that you might have to pursue, which ones are things you must do, which you could do, which you should do, and which you won't do. It's that last one that I find really powerful. Now, in... In product work, the things you won't do are usually features that you are deliberately deprioritizing. They're not in line with your current goals, and there might be some demand for them, but that demand would distract you from what you really want to focus on. But in private life, won't do takes on a whole different perspective because it can also include all of the things that keep you from achieving your goals whether they're on your to-do list or not. So won't-dos can include things like, I will not play video games today. I know that consumes too much of my energy and time. I will not watch television today. One of the things that I've observed, and, and this, this comes into play with the Eisenhower matrix as well, which is another one of the techniques you talk about in the book, is that when I'm evaluating my day, I tend to focus on the musts. My definition of a must is I look at the things that I intend to do, and I ask which of these things, if I do not do them, something bad will happen tomorrow. And those are my must-dos. The problem, of course, is that musts can consume your entire day because of the way that work tends to expand to fill the available time. And in both product development and in personal life, shoulds can be incredibly important. In personal life, shoulds might be things like eating healthy and exercising. In product work, shoulds might be be things like dealing with technical debt and upgrading technology in order to stay, stay current and cutting edge. I want to hear your thoughts on this. 
When you're looking at must-haves and could-haves and facing the risk that must-haves can consume all of your time and attention at the expense of these intangible but incredibly important things, how do you make sure that, that those long-term goals or those intangible but very important things make it onto the agenda? In both private life and product life, I like to have a sort of budget or a capacity for everything. So in personal life, I always tell to myself, if everything is just must-dos, then it's very sort of not fun and not interesting life. We need should-haves and could-haves in the bag as well. So I try to limit and have a certain capacity also for doing the shoulds and coulds. Another, I think, tool from Kanban is like classes of services. And then we can, based on the type of a service for those intangible, as you mentioned, like having technology that is up to date or building in quality, we can leave the capacity for that as well. So that's the way I solve it. Maybe it's not ideal, but I always tell to myself, you know, life should be interesting. And if I only focused on must, then it becomes a bit dull. I started an experiment just uh, last week, which is so far working out very well, which is very much in line with this. And that is that I was losing weight, which for a lot of people is a desirable thing. I'm really skinny. I shouldn't be losing weight. It's not a desirable thing for me. And I'm losing weight because I'm overworking and missing meals. And so the experiment that I started is I put meditation, exercise, and a good healthy lunch into my calendar as non-negotiable first, and then schedule my day around them. And when lunchtime comes up in my calendar, I don't let anyone book that time. I protect it the way some people protect their their, um, deep work time. I go and I eat a big, healthy lunch. And when it's exercise time, I get out of the office. I go for a run along the river. If the weather is bad, I ran on my treadmill one day. But I do some exercise during that exercise time. And the interesting thing that I've discovered is that one of the features of must-haves or must-dos is that one way or another, they get done. They don't actually require as much prioritization as the shoulds, because you don't have a choice. Well, I love that story, and great that the experiment is working out for you. <laughs> okay, I'll just share that with our listeners in case they find themselves in a similar situation. But, but indeed, if, if all of your work is must-dos, this is another way of thinking about it, is if something bad will happen if you don't do it, then your must-dos are fundamentally reactive. You don't create the life that you want by doing what you have to do. You create the life that you want by making time in order to create opportunities for the future. And those are never urgent. And so a day full of must-haves is a day in which you don't actually move, in which you don't have agency over your own life. You are simply reacting to decisions that you made in the past. You become a victim of your past self. One of the one of the early ideas you bring up in the book is um, the IKEA effect, and I like the IKEA effect. It is somewhat counterintuitive. We all know that IKEA is cheap, unoriginal furniture, 
And yet there is something about spending an entire afternoon fiddling with those tiny little Allen wrenches and the sense of accomplishment that comes from finally getting it done with not too many pieces left over in the box that causes a sort of attachment to it. And so, yes, indeed, when you invest something of yourself, I think Betty Crocker discovered this. There's a wonderful story about how Betty Crocker, I want to say it was Betty Crocker, came out with a cake mix in a box that you just add water and it makes cake. And it didn't sell well. People didn't like it because it had powdered eggs and powdered milk in it. Then they took the powdered eggs and the powdered milk out. So now you had to add milk and eggs. And then people liked it because it felt like baking. Without adding the milk and the eggs, it didn't feel like baking. And you wanted to do something special for your your child on their birthday. And just adding water is not doing something special. But if you broke an egg and beat it in yourself, you were a baker and you baked for your child. So there's that same idea of having a sense of, of value associated with the investment. Now, when you apply that to your life, this becomes tricky because I have invested 54 hard years into the life that I have right now. How am I supposed to not be overly invested in the decisions I've already taken? I think we could separate like the overall life and the big like goals or like decisions I made versus maybe the practicality of the tool comes down to the smaller daily choices and things we do just not to fall victim for IKEA effect or just to be aware of it in general versus like the big questions and the big decisions that we made and that we are feel connected to. So, for example, I worked very hard to get to where I am in my career, but the IKEA effect could cause me to over overvalue my career and my life. Could this be an example of one of the reasons why so many people feel so lost when they retire? Because life is so much more than your career, and when that's taken away, you realize that you've invested too much of yourself in a part of yourself that is not actually the most important or the most valuable part of your life. As a workaholic, this question is very scary to me right now. I think I would try to take a step back and maybe use it for less big things. So like maybe it's a project at work I'm doing. And then, for instance, we we are choosing a tool at work and we try to build something in-house, but maybe there is a better solution that we didn't build. And then that's a great example for IKEA effect, I would say, like, try to be objective and see, like, maybe this out-of-the-box solution would actually work better. In private life, it's similar. So maybe there is something, I put some work into it, I work on it, but maybe there's another solution that I should choose. But of course, we can also discuss this higher uh, level of, like, bigger decisions and bigger questions. But I think the most useful comes from this sweet spot in the middle where it's not as life-changing questions or not as meaningful potentially, but for sure useful, smaller little things to discuss. You know, I I think um, one example of the IKEA effect in personal life is the mistake I'm going to call it a mistake. I might offend some people by doing this, but I'm going to call it a mistake. And that is becoming overly invested in some aspect of your child's development. So 
whether it is the ex-football star dad who is is playing football with his son every weekend and encouraging his son to pursue sports, who just can't let go of all of the time that he's invested in trying to turn his son into an athlete when his son is saying, for goodness sake, dad, what I really want to do is be a musician. That's the Ikea effect at play. I've invested a lot in your athletic career. <laughs> you go play ball. So, so maybe a, a good application of this, this recognition of the Ikea effect is to look at where we're investing our time and energy with skepticism and ask ourselves, are we investing in this? And, and this, this comes to something else we were talking about, which is the sunk cost fallacy. Am I investing my time and energy into this thing because it's highly valuable? Or do I think it's highly valuable because I've invested so much of my time and energy into it? Yeah, totally, totally. That becomes another scary thing too, doesn't it? When you start picking apart your life and saying, asking yourself, for example, why am I writing these books? Or why am I making this podcast? It's a lot of work. Ooh, okay. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't have said that on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. The, the way I, I see it, I try to stick with the golden middle of those like smaller questions. But it's interesting that the same principle can be applied to these life-defining questions. And it can get scary when you start and scrutinize and analyze and see like, why? Why am I doing this? And where am I investing my energy and time and so on? But it can also be inspirational and aspirational. So what, what, what we've been talking about is uh, reflecting critically on our past choices. But um, when I was reading the part um, this morning, because I read the book at the very last minute, whenever I do, a, do an interview, I read the book usually the day before, sometimes the day of, because I am an avid reader and I can consume a book in a matter of hours. So it's fresh in my mind. So I was looking over the section about um, value positioning statements. It was last night. and. It gave me an idea. A value positioning statement is a way of discovering what the core value of a product is. So what is it? What is this product and, and to whom is it that? And I was thinking about applying that to my life. So what if me, I'm the product, right? And I'm not just one product. I'm multiple products. I am one product to my employer. I'm a different product to my, my family. I'm a different product to my community. But an example I came up with something like, like was, um, how's this for a value positioning statement? As a, and this is the client here, as a teenager who's overwhelmed with all of the demands on my attention, dad, the product, <laughs> Dad provides a role model for making good choices by being transparent in how he applies product management tools to evaluating his own competing priorities and by teaching them to me, which is a way of, of kind of visualizing my role or at least an aspect of my role as a father in a way that can guide my decisions and helps me to see what value I might be bringing to the relationship. Not all of it, but something that's important. Is that a good example of applying a value positioning statement to to real life? Is that what you had in mind? Definitely. I think it's a great example. So I think the important, the important thing to take away from, from, from this is, is that these tools can be both very inspirational 
in terms of helping us to identify things that that we can enthusiastically get excited about and pursue and add value and, and purpose to our lives. But they can also apply a set of critical tools that we can use in order to achieve focus and reduce biases that might cloud our thinking and cause us to put unnecessary attention to parts of our lives that that are probably distracting us from living our best life. But when we're doing that, I want to go to another tool, actually a whole set of tools, because um, you use a lot of hobbies, examples in this book. And we as as product people and as agileists, this is a thing that, that I always stress on this podcast, we are always trying to improve ourselves. We are always looking for opportunities to grow and improve. The fact that someone's listening to a podcast means that they're one of those people who are looking for ideas to grow and improve. And there are more than we can handle. You threw out a bunch of them, like, like learning Hebrew, learning to draw, learn all of the things we could possibly learn. When you have all of these things, and I am in this situation right now, you can help me because I am learning multiple languages badly and way too slowly without nearly enough focus. I'm learning multiple hobbies. At any given time, I may, might be learning this or that of a different instrument, this or that of a different language, different skills. I'm learning to embroider. I'm suddenly curious about knitting now. And I can't possibly do all of it. How can you apply these prioritization tools in order to take, I guess, once you've done your, your diversification thinking, and you realize you have way too many things, way too many options on your plate for developing yourself, how can you apply prioritization tools to narrow them down to something that's going to have the biggest impact? That's a familiar challenge also to me as well. And on one end, it's so interesting to have all these hobbies, but sometimes it becomes daunting and overwhelming. And that's where the prioritization, uh, different prioritization frameworks and tools can be really helpful. I think it all comes down to the value and uh, the price for the value. There are many different tools and frameworks, but I think it's like what I give and what I get in the end of the day. Of course, there is also like the question of time, uh, risk, uh, etc. So it's not as simple. But I think at the end of the day, we should stick to the value and then we should think like, what am I getting from this and how meaningful it is? Does it still serve the purpose? And then what am I giving to, to, to get this? But we can also dig into some of the prioritization tools from the book as well. That could be interesting to the listeners as well. One of them was ice and, and ice is one of my, my preferred tools. But the reason that I like ice is that you can apply some really challenging criteria for confidence, which which I think is often the most difficult thing to estimate. And in a product environment, you can define confidence based on data source. So a request from a single user might have very low confidence. An idea from a stakeholder might have very low confidence whereas data from actual users might have a higher confidence threshold. It seems more challenging to apply in your personal life because confidence is something that emerges 
from a complex set of variables inside your psyche. How can you reduce biases in your estimation of just how confident you are that a given course of action will result in the outcome that you want it to? That's a great question. And it's funny because sometimes I totally scratch the confidence. And I think maybe even in the book I mentioned, I said like how certain I am that a certain thing will satisfy the value. And then I, I'm like, I'm the main stakeholder, so I'm pretty certain. And so I totally scratched the sea from ice. On the other hand, I think it's good to always take a step back and think of different biases that we had, like IKEA effect that we mentioned, and then try and objectively look at the, the bigger picture. You also give an example in the book, which I enjoyed, of using actual data. And the idea resonated with me because um, in my own experience working in product execution, I am frustrated when I see people throwing away perfectly good data. A good example is the way that people tend to throw away blockers. So it came to mind when I was thinking about blocker clustering, collecting all of the, all of the sources of blockers and analyzing them in order to understand some of the systemic impediments. By the same token, you talked about doing something with your personal Kanban board, which I had never thought of. And that is when you finish a task, you don't throw it away, pat yourself on the back and throw it away. You cluster it. And your approach to clustering that you described was uh, putting it in a two-by-two matrix based on effort and satisfaction, was it? Yes which is a great way of learning how to maximize satisfaction with minimal effort. What sort of things did you learn as a result of that practice? It's been interesting to see that not that many things were hard. So then I became suspicious. Naturally, when things seem too good to be true, they usually are. So I was thinking like, am I avoiding picking hard stuff? And then I thought and actually realize that I like a challenge and I do a lot of hard stuff at work and in general, but I also got used to a certain level of mastery in a way. And then I tend to pick things where I'm good at. So that was one of the things that, that I learned. And also it's been interesting that when things were easy, or on the easier side, they weren't as satisfying. But there is this certain threshold and, and finding the balance if like when it gets too hard and too difficult or when it's the right amount of challenge. And I realized they need a good amount of challenge. This reminds me of another concept from the book, uh, The Flow Zone, where if there is too much of a challenge and not that much skill, we fall into anxiety. When there's too little challenge, we fall into boredom. And in the middle, there is this part of flow. So I realized the flow was very important to me. That is a great outcome from that experiment is to identify what sort of work and you should be taking on, even if it's intimidating, in order to achieve as much of that flow state as you're capable of. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Milos Belchevich. There will be a link in the show notes to get the book if you'd like to read it. And if you want to read ahead, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be talking to Steve Tendon, the author of The Book of Tame Flow, Theory of Constraints Applied to Knowledge Work Management. I'm about halfway through the book, and as an extremely experienced Kanban coach and Kanban trainer, I found it very enlightening. A lot of it resonates with some of my concerns and frustrations about the Kanban method. And I think uh, I would strongly recommend that Kanban practitioners give this a listen and give this a read because I think it's always useful to be critical of your tools, to think critically about how you work. There's nothing in this book that invalidates the Kanban method, But I think there are ideas in this book that takes it a step further, especially in some of the more complex environments in which we find ourselves working. And so I'm finding it to be an absolutely delightful read, challenging my assumptions and validating some of my gut feelings about some of the challenging situations in which I found myself in my career. I think it's going to be a fabulous conversation. And that's going to come out on the 1st of February. Um, and so I'll put a link in the show notes to get the book. If you want to read ahead, I would recommend it. It's a, it's a somewhat heavy book, and it's a pretty big one. And so if you're interested in the topic, I think you might find it useful to read the book before you listen to the interview. But you can listen to the interview and decide first if you'd like. Now, one last thing. Um, if you are listening to this on the day that it comes out, and my stats show me that we get at least two to 400 listeners on the first day, that means if you're listening to this on the day that it comes out, that you still have at least hours left to submit a talk proposal to the ACE conference. The call for speakers is going to close today, January 15th. If you're listening to this after that, I'm terribly sorry. The call for speakers is closed. But if you've got a story to tell, we'd love to hear it. Just go to aceconf.com and click on the call for speakers button, and it will take you to the form with all of the information you need in order to submit a talk or workshop proposal to Europe's top agile conference. Okay, one of Europe's top agile conferences. I could count the best agile conferences in Europe on one hand, and the top three or four, I would say, are all pretty much comparable in terms of the quality of the organization, the quality of the speakers, the quality of the audience, the kind of community they they built around them. And I am very proud to say that over the last 15 years of hard work, the ACE conference has become one of them. And so... If you're not coming to speak, then then please get your tickets. I'd love to meet you in person in Krakow, Poland this June. And until then, keep reading, keep learning, and uh, we'll see you in two weeks.